this is a real treat to be here, uh, not just to be at the Skirball, of which I remain uh, a, a longtime fan, but to be up here with Jeff Lewis, um, who, even if he weren't getting to be a good, good friend of mine, um, would be, I think, one of, A, uh, the best writers going, certainly uh, locally, and I would venture to say nationally, but, um, but also, uh, one of the most sadly unsung. Um, so uh, I think we're going to do a little bit tonight to try and shift uh, that. Um, let me tell you a little bit about him. Um, I was a big fan of Jeff's before I knew it. Um, he grew up in New York, went to, I believe, the DA's office in New York City, which I think scarred him for life. Um, parlayed that. Uh, into a ticket west where he began to write for what I still consider, uh, even uh, in the wake of other shows in recent years which have stolen from it shamelessly, what I still believe is one of the best series ever to grace television, Hill Street Blues, for which he wrote and produced for all but one of its years um, and won a couple of Emmys. Um, but now he has that has enabled him to do, uh, um, to, to practice his first love, which is the writing of fiction, I believe. Um, his, uh, his first four books belong to what's come to be called the Meritocracy Quartet. One of them is called Meritocracy. Uh, another one I'm especially fond of, which uh, works through some of his feelings about writing for television, is called Theme Song for an Old Show. Um, Having completed that, which I should add um, will be coming out in an omnibus edition uh, next year, um, for which I encourage you all to keep an eye out. Last year he wrote a book called Berlin Cantata, um, which, is his new, which was his first with his new publisher, House, uh, a great Anglo-American publisher that's, that's dipping a toe into American waters. Um, and now we have The Inquisitor's Diary, which I was tempted to tell you about. Um, but now, uh, with Jeff beside me, and, uh, and having uh, already nattered on perhaps a bit too long uh, about one of my favorite subjects, I might just inflict on Jeff the obligation to, uh, to summarize. Jeff? Uh, well, I, we could certainly pass them back and forth. Have you got a green light on yours like I have on mine? Ooh, okay, well in that case, perhaps I'll bring my chair around next to yours and we can make this a far more intimate affair. Oh, we have a backup microphone. We know this one's working. Excellent. Thank you. You guys come prepared. Um, Okay, now that we've had a suitable breather, perhaps it wouldn't be too much of me for me to start describing the Inquisitor's Diary and then you can interject um, when I get it wrong because I've only read it one and a half times and loved it, both of them. Um, the Inquisitor's Diary is just that. It's a diary of a 17th century um, priest uh, in or beginning in Mexico. This is the Inquisition. He is in search of heretics. Um, who do not want to be found. Um, one of them, though, turns out um, to be in his very caravan as they search the Southwest. And um, 
And uh, the, the wonderful word that Jeff, I assume, did not invent, but in fact um, uh, uses and was new to me, is the verb Judaizing. He finds that one of his company um, is guilty of Judaizing, which is complicated by the fact that his narrator, the priest, um, is growing rather fond of this person who is, in fact, um, as it becomes increasingly apparent, a heretic. Um, so my first question for Jeff um, would be uh, probably um, to ask why someone who is not, so far as I know, a 17th century priest, um, and after having written a couple of books that whose, whose particulars um, resemble your own in some degree, um, how you came to write in the voice of Father Alonso. Well, I, 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 is this working? I guess it is. Um, I guess there are a couple parts to that question. One is, how did I get away from writing material that sounded more or less close to my life or personal late 20th century experience? And one answer to that is I sort of ran out of that stuff. Um, I, I did write four books that I was trying to uh, capture my generation over four decades, uh, a kind of a book a decade. And I suppose now, finally, another decade has passed. You're going to go back? <laughs> Is it going to be the meritocracy quintet now? <laughs> I, I suppose if I could figure it out, maybe there's another, another story there. But, but the first most honest answer is that I thought that that uh, semi-autobiographical strain was, was exhausted. Mm -hmm. um, as for how I wound up with this world, that's more complicated and I'm not sure I can give an, e an easy answer. I, I've thought about this a lot because it, it took me a long time to come to this book. And it takes me a long time to come to any book. But I, here's an analogy. Uh, there were a whole bunch of things. And what I realize now, because I never know what I'm going to write, I mean, for a long time I don't know what it is, no matter which book winds up coming out in the end. The, there are a whole bunch of kind of points. They're almost like uh, stars in the sky, and then at some point suddenly someone wakes up and identifies a constellation that tells a story. I think there were several of those kinds of points that wound me up here. One of the silliest, but maybe uh, most in, uh, determinative, was that I bought a book about the Muranos uh, at a library sale back in, in the state of Maine where uh, I, I go with my family in the summer. Uh, and I didn't know much about the Muranos, and I just bought this book because it was for a dollar, and it was there, <laughs> and, and I got real interested in the Muranos being, um, I would say parenthetically for those who don't know, uh, it, was a, it was a word as, uh, ascribed by Spaniards to certain of uh, those formerly Jews who converted to Catholicism after the edicts of Ferdinand and Isabella in the late 15th century required all the uh, uh, 
Jewish people of the, of the peninsula of their kingdoms either to uh, uh, convert or leave. And a number converted, uh, a large number converted. And of those who converted over the next 100 years, some became suspected of not having converted to Catholicism sincerely and to, in fact, while having the outward forms of Catholicism still secretly practicing um, Judaism in secret at night. There's some question historically and otherwise whether this actually happened or whether it was a fantasy of, 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 of s s the Spaniards, but in any event, it was the, uh, the uh, prime motivation for the instigation of the Spanish Inquisition and the so-called Muranos, which was a, a, a word uh, roughly translated as swine, uh, were the chief and original object of the Inquisition. I think I'm getting away from your question, but I wanted to explain exactly what was attractive uh, about this book that I bought. No, I think and it's what necessary. Was, what was attractive about it was uh, this, um, accusation and possibility of a secret life and also the question of whether of belief can be coerced or how belief is coerced and what are the consequences of attempting to coerce belief. Um, it's actually a great lead-in to uh, a passage that I'd like you to read. Um, I don't know if you feel that, that I mutilated the story sufficiently in the course of introducing you, feel free to augment No, that. I think you got it. And well, in, in that case, it. yeah, read, read that. There was a, a, a diary entry that we talked about earlier, which uh, coincides with um, the beginnings of Fremont's sure. suspicions. Sure. Um, uh, this this uh, passage uh, uh, occurs in the book after the narrator, Fray Alonso, has been sent north as far as Santa Fe uh, uh, from Mexico City, has found no heretics there, is sort of ticked off, uh, and hates being there anyway, uh, and is now on his way back. And in, in Santa Fe, he had to, he lost a bunch of his crew to uh, dreams of finding the seven cities, the seven cities of gold that were the ancient Spanish dream for the what became the American Southwest. Anyway, he hires a whole new crew, and now he's headed back towards uh, Mexico City. Uh, 26 November. A most extraordinary occurrence. I cannot yet tell whether it is fortune or misfortune, blessing or disaster. Our cook, whom I have previously mentioned and who the other men entitled the dumb one, on account of his absence of conversation, has fallen under sharpest suspicion of the very crime that I was sent out to uncover and have hitherto nowhere found. It came about as follows. We broke our march one half hour before sunset as usual. It is my policy now that the days are cooler to give ourselves a bit more time before the onset of night to prepare camp. As is my wont, I wandered over to the area behind the mules where the so-called dumb one had prepared his fire. He was busy with the preparations, husking maize and the like, and could hardly have noticed my stunned gaze when I observed a candle lit a few feet from the fire, 
near where the food he had unpacked for the evening's meal was collected. There was nothing special about the candle. It was but one of the candles we customarily use, nor did the dumb one make the smallest effort to conceal it. He didn't seem to think there was anything wrong in lighting a candle when darkness had not yet settled and when there was not another candle lit in the camp. Nor was the candle placed such as to be of any use in illuminating anything or in aiding him with his labors. I thought at first it must be a candle he had used in lighting the cook fire, and he'd said to him in an easy enough manner, So, is that how you start your fire, by first lighting a candle? He didn't appear to know what I was talking about. He gave me that vacant look that well suits his face. He has eyes set far apart, an unappreciable nose, a thin mouth suited to silence, and a shock of hair the color of sand that covers the majority of his brow. He has, in short, the look of some harlequin player, less the extravagant costume, of course. He is dressed in little better than rags, a small, youthful man. I repeated myself. I said to him, you used your candle to light the cook fire? He shook his head. No, I asked. Then why do you light it? It is not yet dark. He lifted the candle questioningly. Yes, the candle. I understand why you light the cook fire, I said. He, he hunched his shoulders and protested ignorance. By now I was already beginning to sense the facility of his pantomimes, as if these handful of gestures, which I could see might be repeated endlessly in minute variation, were his entire vocabulary, which he had crafted to meet his necessities. You, you must have a reason, I said. People don't light candles for no reason. His wide-set eyes beseeched me. I took this to mean that he was holding to whatever his shrug had meant. I don't follow, I said. It is Friday evening. Did you know that? He nodded. Do you always light such a candle on Friday evenings? He nodded again. Is it some sort of tradition with you? The same. Is it something from your family, your mother? Yes, yes. I do not believe I have previously encountered anyone in such circumstances who acted as if he had less to hide. Was he guileless? Was he fearless? But did your mother have a reason to light a candle? I asked. His eyes now narrowed, perhaps wondering why I was asking such odd questions. Your mother, her reason. I perhaps made silly gesticulations myself as if his were a pigeon tongue I was attempting to emulate. Now he made a kind of upward spiral with his finger, a gesture, I supposed, of ongoingness. Her reason was the same as yours? It was her tradition? I asked. He smiled broadly in agreement, pleased that we were now in easy communication. I decided I must lay out a few markers for him to be sure I was being un understood. The issue, sir, is not simply whether you light a candle, but whether you light one particularly on Friday nights and not for illumination or some other practical purpose, but precisely for the reason you seem to ascribe, namely tradition. You do it to remember your mother, she to remember hers, and so on back through history, all of it prescribed by law of which you may be only dimly aware, but which lives through the very tradition to which you admit. Am I far off here? The dumb one, smiled broadly at me. At that moment, I imagined he might be simple as well as mute. In truth, I was stunned by his good nature. I decided to ask no more questions. Doubtless, this was my prosecutorial experience at work, knowing to quit when one has reached the point of maximum advantage. 
The dumb one returned to his labors and produced a most excellent meat dinner of cod and maize. With every morsel of food I ate, I wondered and prayed for guidance. Dear God, by your grace and pity which opened the path of salvation even to those who murdered your only begotten son, I see that the evidence of Judaizing is overwhelming. But what action shall I take? I'll stop there. I guess that's the that's the crux of it. Um, Frey Alonso's voice is so unique. On the one hand, he's a sensitive guy. He's not rapacious or bloodthirsty, but he's he's at the same time he's very pious and almost. You mentioned his prosecutorial experience. I don't know what he has in common with the folks you rubbed elbows alongside in the DA's office, but um, where did this voice come from? Well, uh, well, first I'd say about his prosecutorial attitude, it could be easily have been mine. I did do this for a couple of years in the DA's office in Manhattan. And so I guess I came to understand, I did go to law school, I guess I came to understand um, a certain way a, a legalistic mind works. In addition, I would say, and one of the appeals of writing this book, is especially from reading this single book about the Muranos that I, I, I mentioned to you all, uh, which was written by a guy named Cecil Roth and originally appeared in the early 1930s. I came to sense that the Inquisition itself, and I would say uh, uh, as well uh, about another story about the Italian Inquisition that I read some years ago and thought about a screenplay for, that it, that it was quite different from its existence, its formation was quite different from what we would infer if, if we only knew the movies where guys are walking around in black cloaks, you know, with things over their heads and you can barely see their face and everything is in shadow and they're torturing people. Not that the torture didn't exist, but what I found was, and this could have been the prejudice of the book that I read, the Cecil Roth book, was that it was quite a legalistic um, uh, institution that had quite a lot of procedures that had to ad be adhered to, quite a lot of good records to be kept. In some ways, unfortunately, you could say that it had resemblances to the Nazis in, in, in that respect. Um, but that um, sense of, I mean, we, we see the Inquisition in a movie and we think, oh, those guys are horrible, but they plainly didn't think they were doing anything wrong. In fact, they thought they were doing the Lord's work and uh, acted as such and spoke as such from my best inferences. And in truth, to me, it becomes easier to believe in, the, in the, the nuts and bolts of the Inquisition and also to believe why it remains, you know, we, we, we think we're so much better than those people. But um, actually, it's a fairly, it could be, fortunately in much of the world it's not, but it could be a fairly short leap from the kinds of uh, uh, attitudes, opinions, decisions, actions taken back then and 
to what goes on in some of our institutions now. And of course, you know, we have the experience of, uh, even in, in our country, of the uh, waterboarding and stuff that took place, or, uh, and in, uh, covert interrogations that took place in the aftermath of 9-11, 2001. Uh, as evidence, I mean, waterboarding as appears in this book is, was a, uh, it wasn't called that then, but it was the exact same torture that existed um, uh, at the time of the Inquisition and still seems to be in some fashion. So... That's, uh, that's well said. Um, speaking of the Nazis, I, I wonder if you would um, read the epigraph uh, to the book from Simone Weil and, and tell us how you arrived at it. Uh, if we want to have a love which will protect the soul from wounds, we must love something other than God. Um, how I came to that, I, I, probably I bought a book by Simone Weil in the same library sale I bought. <laughs> I bought the book about the Moranos. That's the most likely thing. But anyway, at a certain point, I did start reading her, and I found her an extraordinary writer and spirit and um, and if I was mentioned before this notion of a set of points that form one day you wake up and you can see that it's a constant or one day night you see that it's a constellation and all the dots fit together I think reading her was one of those dots Simone Weil if I'm saying it right and I have no idea if I am um, was a French Jewish woman who came to believe in the divinity of Christ and be, after having been a communist in the 30s and, and converted I think late in the 30s but didn't convert actually never did because she felt that she could although she was a believer in uh, uh, the divinity of Christ she uh, could not accept what she felt was the uh, institutional corruption of the Catholic Church and um, remained a French patriot to the, uh, through the war, went to England, and as I understand the story, in, went on a hunger strike uh, in, while in England in which she would only eat as much as she understood the average French person under the German occupation was able to eat and died of starvation in 44, 45. Um, anyway, I think that those few words, probably if there was a, a matter of heart and mind together that influenced the shape of this book, it was that I, I think we have a tendency to in our you know our early 21st century American society to think that um, believing in God is an easy way out in a, in a, a certain fashion that well you know now all my troubles are so you know speaking of the other that person's problems are solved because they just uh, believe in God, so what do they care? Everything will be fine. 
and I think it was uh, her genius and her capacity as a, a, a writer to frame in words deeply meaningful to me the, uh, the, the grave problems of the believer that it's not the solution it's not a solution it's a uh, it's a challenge well not to uh, please don't take this the wrong way but what kind of a Jew are you <laughs> I, can, I could take that the wrong way <laughs> uh, I don't know I'm a guy just going along uh, I guess I'm your average uh, secular Buddhist Jew. <laughs> best, I, best I can tell. Um, I'm curious. A little, little, little bit of Sufi thrown in, a little bit of, <laughs> little bit of, little bit of this, a little bit of that. Very, quite actually, I, I would say for uh, a Jew, quite actually sympathetic to the um, edifice of love that I think uh, Christianity has built over the millennium. I think that we uh, have a tendency, again, in our society now, it's the easiest uh, sort of edifice to kick around, and yet um, uh, without it, I think we would find a pretty big hole in all our lives. How much should we take Frey Alonso's words at face value? He is gradually beginning, I think, if we trust him, to grapple with some of these questions. But do you find him to be an altogether reliable narrator? Well, um, I think he's reliable. Uh, and again, I, 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 I mean, it's, it's, it's a little hard to answer the question to, um, in an audience of people who may not have read the book, yeah. but, but I would say that I, I think he's reliable in terms of describing what his current conscious feelings are and perhaps a layer or two beneath those. Are there currents roiling in him of which he has not a clue, which, but which we might be able to somewhat infer from what he does say, sure. But having said that, I would probably say that's true of most narrators that they, you know, we, we don't. We don't. Ex I mean, we. I guess we could have a third-person narrator who knows everything, at least within the confines of his book. As a 21st century person, I am often repelled by those guys, <laughs> frankly. But near as I can tell, you've written... And I don't believe those guys. I mean, yeah. those are the ones I really have doubts about. <laughs> um, so far as I know, most of your narrators have been in the first person, although most of them also um, recollecting in tranquility the events of the book and having had a chance to reflect on them, which Frey Alonso scribbling down a few notes before bedtime every night uh, hasn't really had. Um, don't you like the sound of your own voice? No. <laughs> no, I, 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 yes and no. Uh, I like it in, 
I like it when it sounds cool. <laughs> I mean, I like it when it sounds like Hemingway or something. Uh, but but uh, I think some of my first person narrations have sounded pretty close to a version of me that I rather like. Mm -hmm. But on average, <laughs> I'm not sure how much I, I care for it. And, and speaking of unreliable narrators, I imagine that the, those versions of my voice that I'm rather pleased with, as in, I think, Meritocracy, A Love Story, for instance, or in any of the Meritocracy books, um, uh, might be unreliable if you wanted to actually uh, uh, judge that voice compared to the voice of me who you would find every day. I think you would find a me who had leapt towards some other writers I admired or some literary forms I admired or something or other. Well, at the risk of an unreliable answer, other than Simone Weil and Ernest Hemingway, who, who have been some of the writers that, that you think have had the most impact on you and on your work? And is that the same question? Well, in a way, I, I would say in the first instance, like, almost, Almost no surprises here. Uh, <laughs> as, as your typical American of this year, I would say I haven't got quite past Hemingway and Fitzgerald, really. I mean, that's just true. I really like the, uh, I, I have long admired the, uh, and not liked every book, for, but I haven't read every book, but I mean, even the ones I've li read, I haven't liked. The muscularity of Philip Roth. Um, I certainly, um, there was, there was a point in time when I despaired of, uh, of the, of the, you know, the vast, almost inhuman facility of, of Proust, you know, and I thought, oh, if I can't write like that, why bother? <laughs> and, um, and similarly, but before that, the early insane facility of Updike. You mm. know? I mean, I, I loved his, the way words would roll, roll, and I wish I could do that. And so maybe, if wishing is making real at some point, even 1%, maybe a little. Would you say that, that your years in arguably the first great dramatic writer's room of its medium, were helpful to you when you turned to fiction or something of an obstacle or? Both. Really, how? Both. Helpful in that, in a way, I had, you know, I had some validation, I suppose. I mean, you know, you could go out and, I mean, what a wonderful thing about doing a TV show that people like. You can. Afterwards, you could think like 20 or 30 million people really like what you did, which it was, you know, a, a, a way of thinking. Uh, it was confidence building, you know, <laughs> really. Uh, Do you write in a room with your Emmys on the shelf? No, no. Um, I, I write in a room that has an adjoining bathroom that has a couple statuettes in it oh. over the toilet. <laughs> um, but... Uh, Negatively, I would say that, um, you know, things to overcome. 
and, and this wouldn't apply to every writer, it just would apply to my own, you know, my own motivations. There were some amount of instincts of, for uh, commercial appeal, of, you know, of, of aiming a little too hard to please, mm -hmm. of trying to be a little too amusing and actually in a corporate setting, that's to say because this Hill Street was very much a group written show of trying to meld in and please everybody else who was there and be part of something. All of which were fine habits for writing what that was. And, I, and I'm not dismissing those at all, but then when I turned around and said, okay, now you gotta write your novel, right? Which I'd actually, when I was younger, I'd written novels, but now I'm going to be go back and really write them. Hmm. Uh, you mean you there were some bad habits I had to get kind of get rid of to, in a way, I guess you would say, try to purify my voice or voices, uh, uh, and I took took a bit. Now you know when you soon enough get the recognition you deserve for your fiction yeah. as you have for <laughs> your dramatic writing. Mm -hmm. Somebody's gonna see those old books. Do you want them seen? I mean the, the pre Hill Street presumably on yeah. ones. I, I I've I brought out one manuscript last year thinking, oh I bet there's the hulk of something in there that I could use or do something with. And it was terrible. <laughs> And I still think there might be the hulk of something there I can use, but I haven't I haven't figured it out yet. It's, I don't know. I, not not how they are now. I would oh juvenilia, <laughs> would say. but but someday yeah yeah maybe. Speaking of hindsight, a, at my request, um, I think you just reread the Inquisitor's Diary for what must be the first time since the copy editing stage. Yeah. Um, how does it hold up? What surprised you? I had the uh, experience, uh, which I've had at some point with respect to every book I've written, if I happen to go back to it, of thinking, I wrote that? Is that a pleasant First, or an unpleasant? And, no, basically pleasant, basically pleasant. But um, oddly concerning in that I'd forgotten a lot of what I'd written. You know, I mean, it's not only, oh, that's pretty good, I could do that. I could never do that again, which was one part of it. The other part is I had no idea I'd done it. <laughs> and I'm not sure whether, uh, I, I'm not sure how to say where that comes from, but I definitely had both those, uh, both those feelings and going back and reading it yesterday. Mostly pleased, though, uh, actually. And that could be, you know, I mean, I'm forcing myself to like it because it's out there and there's nothing I can do about it. There's something, sometimes I go back and read things that are unpublished that I haven't looked at in years. I mean, that happened to me just a couple weeks ago. That, oh my God, this is so awful. How could I even think this was finished? When you're awful, what are you doing wrong? A whole bunch of things. Um, that's a stupid observation. I mean, or that, or that sounds terrible, or what, or that's too many words. Uh, 
all of which are, I guess, you know, part of the process and editing and working and looking and, um, but luckily, I do not torture myself with that, with something that's already published and out there. I think, oh, good. <laughs> well, I'm going to open this up to questions in, in just a sec, um, unless somebody has one they've been itching to ask now. Um, but I thought I would, would ask one last one, or maybe one penultimate one, which is, um, and, and you know, keep one in my pocket for, for um, uh, a finale, and that's uh, California has an important cameo at oh, the yeah. end of The Inquisitor's Diary. Um, now, without giving too much away, um, what prompted you to bring it all back home that way? Uh, let's see, I'll give, I'll give anything away here, but, in terms of the points of, uh, you know, that, uh, that would form a constellation, one of the key points has to do with, um, the stories that have, uh, uh, abounded in the last um, 10, 15, 20 years, or at least they've had, abounded, abounded might be too strong, have had some currency I've read about, not, not too extensively, which, which suggested that some of the uh, earliest European settlers of California and of the Americans, what is now the American Southwest generally, but in particular, uh, I was thinking because I live here, uh, Southern California, uh, were actually the descendants of what had once been secret Jews. Uh, stories of this type have come out. I don't know if they've come out here, but they've come out in Texas and New Mexico. And so actually what I thought I was doing here in a certain way was writing a kind of foundation myth for uh, California. Well. If, if if you ask me, and if you tell me that that crypto Jews were the foundation of either Texas, New Mexico, or Bel Air, I know which one. <laughs> I strongly suspect <laughs> of having been. So, have we got a question or two? Yes, ma'am. No, nobody behind you. Hi. I mean, I bet it. I bet the, there's a problem in that question somewhere about uh, who's to judge about the good, you know, bad and good. I would, I would say though, going to elaborate a little about what I said about Christianity. 
you know, much as we admire, who've, you know, who've studied even a little history, the pagan world for various things, um, the immense kind of casual cruelty of that world um, to, was superseded by at least a, a doctrine that attempted to bring love, human love, closer and more universally into play. And whether that, what, how well that's worked, given the vagaries of all our hearts and, you know, and, and the limits of our capacities as generally, you know, I think is open to question. So, you know, depending whether you're a pessimist or optimist, you can say about religion or about a lot of other human institutions, whether they've contributed more bad or good. But I actually think despite all, and I, you know, I spent a lot of time reading Gibbon over, over <laughs> the last Gibbon, decade. Decline and fall yeah, of the I, Roman I, Empire I took, I had this, I had this reading project um, where I had an eight volume set of Gibbon and which I, and I read one volume a summer <laughs> for eight summers and finally finished. And of course, Gibbon hated religion. I just, he just, you know, he, he, he was constantly on Christianity's cases, all his superstition and messing up the beauties of the first century AD when, you know, the Roman Empire spread out and was great and brought peace and prosperity to mankind. And I was sympathetic to that as well. But I still have the sense that we would not, our, the way we all look at life has much to do with giving primacy to a kind of love which without uh, uh, Christian institutions and Europe and much of the world, we wouldn't do in quite the same way, whether for good or bad. I mean, you know, you could, you could say that the you know, endless hypocrisy is like the likely result uh, of all that. I, I think I read the uh, Quran once and was struck by how often the chief accusation against the Christians was that they were hypocrites. Hmm. Um, anyway. Um, so let's see, you've read Proust, you've read Gibbon, you've read the Quran. What's your next big project? <laughs> I told David, I told you, my last big project, never mind, I have no idea what my next big project was. My project over the summer was to read Finnegan's Wake. And I decided to read it in the following fashion. I would not try to make any sense of anything in it because I knew I wouldn't be able to. I would just sort of listen to it. And when I was all done, I would go on Google and find out what people thought had happened. And that's actually what I did. And I read it all. It was really a lot of fun, except in the boring parts. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and then I went on and I, like, I read the Wikipedia article, uh, which was really long on Finnegan's Wake. It felt like almost reading Finnegan's Wake. Um, and I read and I was nodding. I didn't have a clue. Those characters were in it? Are you kidding me? I didn't have a clue that those people were there. Deep down you knew. And, yeah, deep down. <laughs> and, and now, a couple weeks after 
doing this on Wikipedia, I've already sort of forgotten who they were again. But I take it there was a family in there. It was sort of like a sitcom, <laughs> it turns, it turns it. out. <laughs> um, another question, maybe? Or, um, or speaking of next projects, um, once you finish rereading Finnegan's Wake, what, what can we expect from you next? Other than the long-awaited omnibus edition of all four books of the yeah. meritocracy quartet, um, I've actually I have I've I've written a couple things. I'm a little sort of ahead of myself in a certain way, and I hope at such time as I may or may not have a chance to publish them, that I'll still like them and want and want them to be published. Uh, aside from it seems like you've got a pretty good batting average for publishing what you write, at least since yeah. Juvenalia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, we, we all know the, the publishing ain't what it used to be. Uh, and, and so, in any event, I, I do have a couple books. Uh, one is very short. It's so short that I think the obvious thing that somebody could say about it would be, that's too short <laughs> Publish. But then I look, you know, there's, I've seen some little skinny things around. Uh, and another one is a little longer, and they're both love stories. Ooh. So, uh, we'll see. And then I've got, I have a, a collect, uh, you know, an accumulation of short stories that are all pretty much uh, California stories, L.A. stories. Uh, some of which have been published and most haven't. And I have this other collection of pieces that... Um, I, I call the triumph of reason, which are sort of ironic takes on historical moments, catastrophic historical moments, that where one imagines somebody, uh, some character fictively coming in and, and by the exercise of reason changing the course of history. <laughs> Which we all know, which we all know how likely that would have been <laughs> to happen. Anyway, then those I have as well. Well, I can't wait. Um, I, I've got one last question in my pocket, but I, I wonder if anybody else wants to jump ahead of me in line. I shouldn't have said that I have one last question. You, 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 you want to defer. Um, ultimately, what do you hope that readers take away from from reading the Inquisitor's Diary? We just lost it, but I have no further use for mine. Would oh, no, I got it? it. Here it is. I just shut it off. I hit the button by mistake. I think uh, this, I think if people remember Simone's few little words there, which I actually paraphrase, the Inquisitor paraphrases them at some point. Really? At some point in agony, he's, he's, he, he he says something like affliction and love, love and affliction, will one lead to the other or something like that. But uh, if we want to have a love which will protect the soul from wounds, we must love something other than God. Uh, that would be something. I mean, if I, I can barely remember it myself, but that would be something. Well, I thought I loved the book and talking to you tonight, I love it even more. Thank you very much. Thank Jeffrey you, David. And, and Thank you so much, David.
Really. A real pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeffrey. Ooh, and now we have a question. I tell oh, you what. And thank you all for coming. The lady has a question which Jeff would be delighted to answer for you out in the lobby where I believe one or two copies of the Inquisitor's uh, Diary await you. Thanks again.